live. Hey. hey. Welcome to episode two of our podcast. Today we're going to be talking about Indigenous law and Aboriginal law and how the two are not the same. But before we get started, Danielle has some exciting announcements. Yes, we want to give a special shout out to everyone who participated in our giveaway, the launch of our podcast. Uh, special shout out to everyone who contributed to the gifts. Blake Angie Kinev, you guys can follow him on Instagram and all of his phenomenal Woodlands conceptual art. Caitlin Nigo is an Anuk and she donated a beautiful pair of sealskin earrings. Uh, shout out to grandmother <laughs> i guess we all know who that is. <laughs> the mysterious and elusive grandmother i'd like to thank myself <laughs> what's that one meme with um is it snoop dog snoop dog yeah i thank myself <laughs> for getting myself here today <laughs> and of course we want to give a special shout out to nadine k50 instagram user um, i believe nadine is from treaty three but thank you so much for participating in our giveaway and we hope that you enjoy your gifts make applause goes here no <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so thank you, Danielle. And yes, congratulations to our winner, Nate Dean. And thanks for everyone um, for all the love you've shown us thus far. There was a bit of delay in between the first episode and this episode. And the reason for that is, is that we're busy, young and up and coming lawyers. And um, sometimes things are just beyond our control. So sorry, guys. Thanks for hanging out and waiting for episode two. And I'm going to make the least promise that episode three will come sooner. <laughs> season will take an entire year just watch <laughs> yes it's like watching game of thrones it takes forever <laughs> but I promise it. it'll be, it's worth it it'll be Lumped. quicker than seasons of game of thrones i promise thank god <laughs> okay so episode two indigenous and aboriginal law which are not the same i'm going to give it to no pressure, Alyssa Bird, you're up first. Can you tell me in 50 words or less the difference between Indigenous and Aboriginal law? Just kidding, there's no word count. Go. <laughs> I was going to say, uh, this, this is a conversation that has come up, I think more like very apparent in their first year of law school in terms of what is defined as Aboriginal law and what is defined as Indigenous law. I talk, I speak about uh, Indigenous law as it's it's our ceremonies, it's our language, it's our relationship to one another, it's the relationships within families, it's our relationships with the natural world. All those relationships and all those things that we have with, uh, with one another and other people, uh, there's rules and responsibilities that come with those relationships in, in terms of what it means to be uh, a good relative. And Indigenous law is encompassing in all of that. And obviously, that's that's very different from what uh, Aboriginal law, I, I would say, is. What is Aboriginal law? Well, Danielle, do I have some information for you? Aboriginal law is laws as Canadian laws as it applies to First Nations people only. Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> and it, sorry, go. Is it First Nations people only? Or are we thinking Aboriginal of Aboriginal law? law, like as it's defined in the constitution, in which case it would also apply to Inuit and Métis people? Well, they were tacked on afterwards. 
Like I'm pretty sure they were just thrown on very recently. Um, oh, there was it was it the Daniels case that recognized that Métis people had um, first Indigenous rights, and uh, that only came out within the last five years, I think. Don't quote me on that. COVID's had more of my time, <laughs> <laughs> my timeline in my brain. <laughs> yeah, I encourage anyone to pick up a book uh, specifically that talks about Section 35 and the division of powers between Section 91 and Section 92 and the history of the Indian Act because there's a whole um, background information there of kind of the formulation of what is understood to be Aboriginal rights. Mm-hmm. Like in a nutshell, Aboriginal law is how the, the colonial construct of Canadian government has imposed itself and defined who we are. And that's not necessarily how we would define our own laws as Indigenous sovereign nations. Mm-hmm. Like this question comes up all the time too. Like, you know, I, I never even thought of Indigenous law as being a concept and what that concept actually meant until we started studying quote unquote Aboriginal law in the context of law school. And I thought these are not, you know, our laws or our values. And then I came to understand that the way that we were raised and those ceremonial experiences, those lived experiences um, really shaped my understanding and those in and of themselves, uh, those values, those principles, those teachings that we were surrounded with and have been passed down from generation to generation those are Indigenous laws. And you never think of it as being law. Like I remember doing this um, session with the community in in Grand Rapids. We wanted to ask the community uh, and their their knowledge keepers, what is Wakotuin or what is Cree law? And they really struggled with that. They said, "There, there is no such thing as Cree law. It's just, you know, we have these ways of being and knowing and doing things and Wakotuin has a number of different meanings within different contexts. And there was a lot of storytelling and lesson learning that went along with each term that they would have considered a quote unquote Cree law, but they still to this day would never, you know, consider using the word law as applied to what their understanding of how they should conduct themselves in certain situations, like being on the land or being on the water, being stewards of of all of those things or our relationships. It was just, it was just a part of who, who we are and how we do things and, and how we exist. So that has been a big learning experience for me in understanding what is Indigenous law. And we don't learn that in school. We learn Aboriginal law. That Mm -hmm. is the disappointment. Mm -hmm. Another disappointment (laughs) of law school. (laughs) Well, again, it just comes down to just people not knowing and not willing to recognize Indigenous law as having that much of great importance. It, in the context of law school and legal institutions, they like to obviously go through the lens of, well, the creation of the, um, the Constitution Act, because da, 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 that's the whole basis of the legal framework, right? And so it's hard for people to grasp the this, um, the concept of Indigenous law and this way of being as being just as equal of importance, or um, I would even argue more important than what the British Empire kind of threw over here and impo- imposed on everybody. Because again, the indig- Indigenous law, my understanding is 
our connection to the land around us, right? And that's how it was built. That's how it was created. That's how it was given to us through creation, through creation stories. And it just makes sense to govern yourself with the law that is so connected to the lands and people around you. I'm going to interrupt Alyssa and I'm going to say it's govern yourself accordingly, but to the obligations that we as Indigenous people have. That's how I've been sort of, I've I spent a lot of time um, reflecting on how I view Indigenous law. And I like, it's an obligation that we have to ourselves, to the land, to everything we touch, everything we interact with. Mm -hmm. And so that has really um, changed how I view you know, going into ceremony, offering my tobacco, whether it be uh, to the land when I go harvesting or to a knowledge keeper when they share things. It's an obligation that I have to pay my respects um, for everything that whatever I'm asking has given to me. Mm-hmm. It's so interesting too that you would bring up those practices because it's not like indigenous law has ever been written down. So does that make it any less of a law? Is that the trouble? Hell no. <laughs> Is that the trouble that people are having in recognizing Indigenous legal systems? Is that it's not written down in English? Now nah, everyone just racist and doesn't like Indigenous people. <laughs> no, no, I say that. Jo- I say that um, jokingly, obviously, but it's do you? Just- <laughs> <laughs> um, I would say that the written component historically speaking if you kind of like look back at what's it called colonization Alyssa colonization no well even like the study (laughs) of history right you kind of like look back at okay what was written down because written down is the form that we recognize and it's uh, that's part of the kind of like decolonization theory is kind of recognizing that whatever was written down and kind of taught and put into textbooks was written by British white males right and they kind of cast that lens on everything that has happened. Into it's how important I- to note that it was written by affluent British white males, people who already had the money because people who couldn't afford education back then didn't get educated. So only the wealthy could read and write, mm-hmm. just as a reminder for people listening. And let's not forget that they had a state interest. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> More land, more wealth, (laughs) expansion, all of the above. At that concept of um, what this place used to be called way back when it was like Rupert's Land. And it was just because some king way back when. Yes. I like that land over there. That's mine now. I'm like, no. He claimed it, Alyssa. (laughs) And like a little... That one statement of saying that land over there is mine is the whole creation of Canada as we're kind of forced to deal with now and it's it's, it's bullshit doctrine of discovery it's what the <laughs> entire duper. country is built on <laughs> i remember super duper sylvia, lies sylvia mcadams does a great lecture about the doctrine of discovery and i believe she wrote a book about it too and my mind was just like <sighs> so jaded after that it's really it's really tough to operate as a lawyer uh knowing that every single legal document that this country was built on is built on the doctrine of discovery which essentially says that hey man we showed up here we knew that you were already living here but we own this now and we acknowledge that this is your house but you only have rights to this house because we told you they have rights 
It's just because we gave them to you because we gave them to you. And now we're going to hold them in trust. And that is where the whole Aboriginal rights and Aboriginal law comes from Mm -hmm. is that whole idea of we're giving you rights and like, no, that's not how it works. Yeah. Like ultimately uh, beholden to the federal government because they are holding all these lands that were uh, not extinguished or not surrendered to the crown in trust for us and any resources and monies that are uh, collected from all of that. It's also hold in trust for, I quote, the use and benefit of the Indians <laughs> or anyone else that sort of signed on to treaty or some kind of agreement. But um, that, that still applies today. I think that's what people struggle to understand that Aboriginal law is not the goal. We, don't, we, we never wanted Aboriginal law, but we had to fight for our rights within that context to just be treated with the decency of a human being as an equal and as a citizen. Um, Not even citizens of our own nations, citizens of an imposing nation. (laughs) I also think it's important, another important fact to realize. So Danielle just spoke about how it was Indigenous nations trying to fit in within Canada, but Canada didn't even give Indigenous people or First Nations people the opportunity to fairly represent themselves um, until I think it was the mid 60s or 70s when Indigenous people could finally hire lawyers. I don't have the exact date and I should have looked it up. But yeah, so we couldn't even defend ourselves in this imposing nation because the minute we hired a lawyer, they were like, you're no longer an Indian. So you can't represent these people because you don't belong to them. I want to bring it back to this concept of Indigenous law, because talking about Aboriginal law just makes me really upset. That's fair. We can circle back. Balance. (laughs) Um, But it never occurred to me that something as simple as offering tobacco or holding a pipe ceremony I I mean, like these are, I don't mean to uh, downplay the importance of them. They're not simple by any means, but like, I guess to um, a settler or someone who is not from the community, they would look at those things as, oh, you're just, you know, giving someone something. But there was so much to be said. There was so much sacredness um, and agreement that was hold in those acts that those are our legal traditions, not writing something down and having people sign here, sign there as two parties. It was an oral understanding, it was an oral agreement. And it always reminds me of MA's uh, discussions about treaty and the significance of the treaty medals, for example. You know, Mm -hmm. these two people coming together, shaking the hand. And that visual, um, that was probably the most accurate representation of what we understood as Anishinaabe people, for example, of what we were signing up for is equal um, nations, handshake, there's the land and the water, we're, we're equal stewards of the land, we're sharing this. Mm-hmm. Again, it's that building that relationship with the people who are incoming here. Mm-hmm. And that, but I know it just like the, the weight of those, those acts, those practices, it never really sunk in for me until I really understood exactly what law was. Um, And to me, that's really sad because it shouldn't take me going to law school for it to finally sink in that 
yes, we already have our own laws. Just because we don't have them written down in a document doesn't make them any less meaningful or have any less weight than the Canadian Constitution. Well, I think that just goes into the, I guess, the, um, like the inherent practice of how in, how normalized it was for you growing up with those types of ceremonies and those type of practices is always being around. Because um, I know I grew up in a, a very in a similar situation where ceremony was all around me, um, and I feel very blessed to be able to have been so close with um, people who are knowledge keepers and people who still have the language and people who um, raised me in a way that taught me that those ceremonies were important for something t- for me growing up that was just part of. Yeah, there's there's a sweat going on at Cookums this weekend. <laughs> it's just kind of like normal um, realizing just how important and how, how important it was for the knowledge keepers and the, uh, the grandmothers and grandfathers before us to make sure that those things were still going on so that like our generation of people can still look at those things and see that they're valuable and see that they're um, just how important they are to make sure that there are people who are still speaking to that. Raymond, we've talked about this a lot, but why do you think it's important for Western educated non-Indigenous lawyers to understand what Indigenous law is. Why do I think it's important for Western lawyers, non-Indigenous lawyers to understand what Indigenous law is? Because they occupy space in treaty territory, because they live in a colonized country, a country that has committed genocide against Indigenous people. They have, they owe it upon themselves First of all, to be properly educated on the history of Canada. You know, you can say I'm Canadian. You know, I came I came to Canada like three generations ago. I'm Canadian. Okay, cool. You know your family's history, but do you know the histories of the people who were here first? The real history, not the, um, you talked about treaty, you know, not that they did a handshake and surrendered the land. No, you need to be more, ed- be educated in the significance of Indigenous people believed that they were going to share the resources because Indigenous people don't believe that you can own land, that land is yours to hold. It's that you are borrowing that land for the next gen- from the next generation and you are keeping it in such a condition that that generation can borrow it from the generation after them. Hang on, I have a funny oh. aside story. <laughs> um, do you guys remember when the Forks used to have that big Travel Manitoba uh, exhibit kind of in that glass area? The Johnson Terminal, Alyssa Bird? Yeah, the Johnson Terminal. Yes, I've been there. Yes. <laughs> they used I'm to have like that uh, big windmill and they had like little exhibits that kind of like, oh, here's the history of Manitoba. Um, I remember laughing. Um, uh, my stepdad, my dad, Robin at the time was kind of like pointing it out and laughing at the little blurb of the Pegwis history. Um, because Pegwis is my community and they're talking about how when the settlers came there is a, a strong relationship bond between uh, the community of that was now as a Pegwis First Nation and the settlers at the time the kids were kind of going back and forth and hanging out with each other and a strong relationship of trust was formed Mm. How many years later, they kind of <laughs> blew off the land at Selkirk and kind of relocated to where they are now. And it's just kind of funny that the whole dichotomy, not the dichotomy, the, um, 
how history is written and told and kind of played up to be like, oh yeah, this is, they had like a nice uh, kumbaya kind of relationship, but then yeah. <laughs> Riding <laughs> off into the sunset together <laughs> right. on a horse holding back. hands. <laughs> No, the people who are really riding off to the sunset again were Pegasus uh, community members who got booted and relocated. Yeah, up for real. Uh, for real, for real. Oh my gosh. I also think it's important for people to know or at least have the opportunity to learn about some Indigenous law because there are simple things in a colonized society that you kind of just brush off that in in my opinion in Anishinaabe culture at least is an act of law and relationship building so what I'm talking about is gift giving you know um I had the privilege of growing up in a home where we did learn about our culture we also learned where we were raised in a religious home as well so I have sort of a weird experience of being able to walk the two parallel lines. Um, But I was always taught the importance of gift giving, you know, not just on birthdays and holidays um, when society sort of tells you, you know, you're obligated to give someone a gift, but I mean, just like something as simple as like, Oh, I, she mentioned she's having a bad day. I should give her, you know, buy her a coffee so that she knows that I value her as a person you know, and that that relationship is there. And I think, you know, as I get more educated in a colonial context, but also in a traditional Anishinaabe way, I think about how Indigenous people must have felt, you know, agreeing to share the land. You know, like this is, this is what we're borrowing from our generation, from our next generation, but we trust you so much so that we are going to take opportunities away from our children so you can survive and so that you can thrive. And then the colonizer, so Canada came in and was like, okay, cool, bye, here's your reserve, go away. You know, they just like blatantly broke our laws and disrespected us completely. And then people are always like, oh, why are the natives so mad? Why are the Indians this way? It's just like, guys, just do a little bit of research. It's not, in my opinion, super difficult to do as long as you have the tools and resources and you can learn about it you know learn about how outrageous and disrespectful the whole colonization process has been yeah I find it it really comes down to a difference in in worldviews and understandings and values and that plays out into all aspects of our lives I I think about this a lot in in my work life about how important relationships are to me, even if it's only a working relationship and that's it, it doesn't fit into a capitalist society because on its face, a working relationship is just that. It's just a working relationship. It doesn't matter that you spend eight hours of your day at an office at the end of the day, you go home and, and that's where the relationship ends. And that it's really difficult to reconcile that with our understanding of families and extended families and community and how much time um, and energy we invest in, in building good relationships. And that's always the starting point to anything is working on that relationship. Um, from, from a, a standpoint of mutual respect, mutual love, that was probably one of the hardest lessons that I've learned in the last few years is that 
that you respect someone even if they don't respect you, you love someone even when they don't love you, um, that you exercise all those seven grandfather teachings um, without judgment, without uh, hesitation. Um, and that's still a big learning curve for me because we, whether we like to admit it or not, have been raised in a capitalist society and we've had to learn how to survive. We've had to learn how to survive the working world. We've had to learn how to survive law school, which teaches you that everyone is your competition. And it just does not jive with our understanding of how we see each other. When I look at you two, I see sisters. I don't see competition. And, and that, that, that's how it's supposed to be. <laughs> and it just doesn't fit into what um, the settler colonial society tells us when we're starting off in the world. You go out, you get a job, you get the house, you get married, you do all these things and you contribute to this capitalist society. Um, whereas our, our understanding of, of community and being a part of something is that you, you do it for the greater good. You always think of how are you contributing and giving back to your community. I remember Laura Horton, when we were at the Nabig gathering, talking about how important it is for us to go and get an education, but it's like setting a snare too far away from your camp. If you're not able to bring that food back to your camp because you're, you're so far away, how are you actually providing for your family? And if we're not going back to our communities and giving back to them, what, like we're not doing the work that we set out to do. Not living that indigenous law. We're not, we're, not, we're not living in line with those indigenous uh, values and principles of community and and the collective, the greater good. I'm like, and but I, where is that in a bylaw or a statute? <laughs> <laughs> totally kidding. Right? How do, uh, yeah, I think about that too, you know, like as, as a lawyer now, um, I've been starting to get into corporate law, which I really enjoy because uh, I grew up in the Friendship Center movement and spent so much time hearing stories and, uh, drama of boards and operational staff at, at friendship centers. And then of course, like all the joy that comes with it and working in a really family oriented and matriarch uh, driven movement. Um, and I, I see a lot of indigenous uh, organizations that are trying to move away from that kind of Western structure of hierarchy and bureaucracy. How do you implement indigenous uh, ideas into those bylaws, mm -hmm. right? If you want it on paper. And that's kind of, um, that's kind of the difficulty of, I wanna say like practicing indigenous law, right? We see so many firms now that will list uh, indigenous law uh, as a practice area on their website without maybe really even understanding what that means what is Indigenous law? How are we practicing Indigenous law? How are we um, giving advice to our clients on Indigenous law? Mm -hmm. Do they really understand that there's a difference between Aboriginal and Indigenous law? Well, they will after they listen to our podcast. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like, it's like driving, um, it's like learning how to drive a new car. Like you don't understand how Indigenous law is supposed to work in practice. And I feel that as, as a new wave of 
indigenous lawyers, everyone is looking at us like we have all the answers, that we should be figuring this out. And it's so much pressure. It, it stresses me out. Um, but at the same time, it's very exciting because we have the we have the knowledge, we have the skills, um, and we have the tools to to give that jurisdiction back to our communities and say, we have always had that sovereignty, we have always had that authority to practice our own laws. We just have to, I guess, write it in a way that everyone else recognizes it and understands what it is. And it's all so new, mm -hmm. stressful, but a very exciting time. And I think that um, back to the point of expecting these um, as young uh, Indigenous legal practitioners and people who have been in the game for a long time, they expect one person to have all the answers that can be easily applied to everybody, right? And that's the... I say it's the beauty of Indigenous law because it's so specific to each community. It's so specific to each um, um, nation of people. Like, again, Anishinaabe law is completely different from what would happen in Sequatmak law over in BC. Or um, even Cree law, like even down the road. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's so different. And it's, again, so... Um, I would say I would say it's beautiful in its variety because again it's uh, dependent on the areas that you're in and the people that you're around, mm -hmm. and trying to put that pressure on Indigenous legal practitioners to be the answer to, okay, well, what's going to work over there? We're gonna we're gonna just kind of use that model and adopt it everywhere. I'm like, it's not going to work that way. You kind of have to um, build it up from the people on the land and up from there you can't kind of go across this unilateral decision and be like, you know what, we're going to kind of apply this pan-Indigenous type of approach to everybody. And if anything, history has shown that doesn't work. It just doesn't work that way. It yeah, doesn't work that way at all. That's kind of the, re the relief of it too, is that we don't have to figure it out. We, we're, the, we're the advocates. We're there to help our communities come to an understanding of what our laws are. I guess you could say like, we're the vessel, you know, like we just, we write the stuff down because we're not, we're not those indigenous law experts. We have our own legal experts. Mm -hmm. That's my we're favorite just indigenous people. We're just indigenous people who happen to be lawyers and people automatically assume that that makes us experts in indigenous law. But I, I always share this when people are like, Oh, what do you know about indigenous law? I'm like, well, I grew up in the city. I, if you put me on the land, I would probably die. Um, <laughs> I very much struggle with my language. I don't spend nearly as much time as I should in ceremony or sitting with my elders or even with my kinfolk. I am unashamed to admit that my knowledge of indigenous law is slim to none, but people always assume that being indigenous automatically means that you are an expert in this field or at least that's how I feel when it is when it comes to um, other lawyers asking mm -hmm. me questions about indigenous law or even aboriginal law because they're like oh uh, this case happened here and I'm like okay 
I don't know that. <laughs> it is like when, when anything indigenous related comes up in the classroom and everyone like turns around and looks at you <laughs> with those yes. like eyes. You know what I'm talking about. Oh yeah. When when you read April Raintree and everyone turns around and you're like, okay. Like, <laughs> did that happen to anyone else? No, just me. Okay. Uh, in some form or another, <laughs> we've all been there and it's uncomfortable. It's like, what it's do you want so me to say? It's so uncomfortable. Completely. I'm here to learn as much as you are. Like, <laughs> I'm a child. Why would I know this? <laughs> um, and something that I like, whenever I think about why do people ask me these questions? Like, why do they just assume? I know. And I think the reality is, is like, in Canada, with the exception of Quebec, because Quebec always says their own thing, um, we're a common law. The laws that apply in Manitoba can be used in BC. And I think people kind of take that logic and then apply it with the pan-Indigenous approach, which is often thrown around. And they're like, all of a sudden, they're like, oh, well, I saw this done at UBC, and now they're doing it differently at U-Manitoba. That's not yeah, a <laughs> Yeah, no, for real. That's things you hear about. And I'm always just like, oh my God, like we are not all the same. Just because we happen to share the same colonial map does not mean our nation's map are the same. So I always yeah, just they, like they think it's that. just like one, one indigenous nation. <laughs> one indigenous <laughs> Can nation you imagine under that? God. Like they <laughs> oh, actually God. that the national chief is like, the, the all king overseeing <laughs> like grand grand chief and it's like is he even a Nishinaabe? he's not my chief <laughs> sorry uncle oh, Perry. <laughs> the way it is i don't know him God. he's not mine <laughs> and then so even just this uh, brief conversation that we're having today we're touching on just the tip of the icebergs of the complexities that kind of go behind the term of indigenous law and when we talk about Section 35 and the uh, the federal jurisdiction over Indigenous peoples, they're talking again, trying to deal with us as an umbrella term, and like this doesn't it doesn't work. It does not work at all. Okay, here's one of my favorite questions on this topic. Okay, mm-hmm. who are our Indigenous legal experts? Cook them. <laughs> <laughs> Um, the animals, the spirits. Oh, God. <laughs> Real sacred. <laughs> okay, here's another question. How do you say Okay. <laughs> I heard it How in the you... wind. <laughs> the clouds. I looked up at the sky and the clouds were spelling out to me, Raven, this is indigenous law. Cite me. <laughs> it came to me in a dream. I saw smoke signals once. <laughs> My cookum told me. I was having tea one day and the tea leaves told me. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> oh my gosh. What would be our, if we, if we could develop a class or a curriculum on Indigenous law, right? Because this is something that I think a lot of law schools struggle with how do how would you actually teach that you know there it has been done there are a lot of examples of this being done in universities across the country 
Um, we have yet to see this in Manitoba. Hint, hint, for those of you who are listening, make this shit happen. Please. But what, <laughs> what, what does that look like? I think it first starts with acknowledging which nation's laws you're going to be using mm-hmm. and explaining that these are just the laws for this nation in this area. Mm-hmm. It's important to and- know what treaty... Um, what treaty territory you're in and the people who encompass that treaty area. Yes, yes. And so much more than just a treaty acknowledgement. You know, you go essentially, which is cool. I'll admit, like, it was pretty fun hearing it when it first started. But if you're not going to do any other work in educating yourself on what that treaty acknowledgement is and what it means and what it's outlining and explaining to you, then it really is just words without action. Mm-hmm. So for me, what that would look like, again, is spending time of knowledge keepers or community members of the, the treaty territory that you're in. There are, our knowledge keepers are essentially the libraries of our people. The, those are the people who hold all the the intricacies of the teachings. They know the language and one of the things I find so fascinating to think about is um, when I hear language speakers speak and how they talk, they have to think first in in Cree, as in my Cookham situation, they think in Cree and then they kind of have to wrestle with what they, their thoughts are and then translate it to English. And what that thought process must be like for somebody who has that gift of their, their language is fascinating to me because they must think in like such completely different uh, context because the way that you think in your internal dialogue is shapes the way that you kind of view the world and so spending time with them the knowledge keepers and the language holders and people who have that good relationship with uh with teachings in the land are i would say talking to them about how they think the um, teaching it should look like is where the first guess i would say Mm -hmm. Yeah, like I feel like people are going to listen to this episode and and come away from it wanting to have a better better understanding of Indigenous law, and um, you know where 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 are they going to turn to? And and if we if we wanted to see that, like we want to see ourselves reflected in our education systems, um, and for that knowledge and those teachings to be shared with others, I guess it it then begs the question: Does it end there? Are you then uh, an Indigenous law expert if you take a single course? <laughs> nah. No. <laughs> it, it goes back to what we were first discussing. It, you have to live mm-hmm. it. You have to yeah, live it. Yeah, too. It's 100% um, a way of being and knowing and understanding. And it's a lifelong commitment. A lifelong commitment. Living, living the good life for Bimatsuwan, as, as we call it. I, I would never consider myself an expert on, on our laws because it's just a, a continuous learning process. And like we get the question, um, what, is, what is the end goal? We don't know. <laughs> we, we don't have the answers. Like, and I, I don't know. I, I kind of wish that people would stop asking that question too because I just want to exist. Like I, I went into this field wanting to help my people to be a good advocate and to 
amplify the voices of others or help them find their voice or be that voice for them. Um, and, and that's it. There's so much pressure on us to, to figure out these answers. I mean, I, I think it's a great exercise in conversation and learning, but we don't know. <laughs> and I think it, it's okay. Like I remember one time I had, I had someone who said to me, um, well, if, if you don't do this, then who will? And that, that was, it kind of hit me because, um, the reality is if you don't have indigenous lawyers or uh, legal experts leading the way with indigenous law, then you do, you do end up having non-indigenous people and practitioners who, who don't mind and who very well, like very well would capitalize on the opportunity to build a practice. Um, and I really struggle with that because it just puts so much more pressure on us to also come up with the answers. But then I guess I try to balance that with, uh, you know, it's okay to just exist. It's okay to just, you know, be, be a student of life for now. We're only six months or however long it's been into our first year of practice. <laughs> and I think, that's okay. We're going to be here for a little while learning how to be a good lawyer, first and foremost, how to be a good advocate and all these other things will just kind of, they'll come along. I, yes. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I do agree with everything that's been said. Can I just, something I have an issue with, and maybe it's because I pick hills to die upon is the fact that you in Manitoba, we're governed by the Manitoba Law Society. You can every year you have to fill out a report, which is great, awesome reporting. Um, but you have to check off boxes of the areas that you've been practicing in, which is awesome. Um, so they can keep track and you know make sure that everything's accurate and reflected in that way. But now you have the option of checking Indigenous law. Is no, I'm going to out myself here because I haven't looked at that yet. <laughs> <laughs> I know the deadline's coming up. I will do it. <laughs> but what is, is there Raven just reminding us of the impending yeah. deadlines coming up? <laughs> we're not going to say when we record this. <laughs> uh, but is there the option for Indigenous law and Aboriginal and law? And Aboriginal law, yes. And I believe so. How do they? How would they even know? But it's that's my issue. Is that it's a self-report thing. So I'm, I'm not saying anyone would intentionally lie, but if you're not educated on Indigenous law, um, you know, and let's say you're confused on what Indigenous law is and what Aboriginal law is, and you get them mixed up amongst themselves, you do run the risk of people checking off that they practice Indigenous law when they don't. It's a very real and opera, uh, real opportunity for the mistake to happen and I remember because last year we attended an info um night with indigenous practicing lawyers and I just remember when the law society shared that and I was like I I don't agree like I I don't agree with that at all because yeah. you do you know you can just I'm not going to name names I'm not going to intentionally out any firms because I don't I think they're coming from the right place and they're just going in, going about it the wrong way but they don't 
practice Indigenous law when they say they do. And then another issue that you write, that you raise is, well, how much Indigenous law do you need to practice before you can claim it? Because if you offer someone tobacco, that's Indigenous law. But now can I check that box off on my report? Yeah, like how do you, how do you evaluate or measure um, the competency of someone claiming to practice in that field, to be competent enough to, to practice in the field of Indigenous law? Like, do you have a, a band of elders at the law society who are gonna, <laughs> you know, give you the stamp of approval? Like, what's going on here? I was just gonna it's make just... the joke of uh, like, I made ten tobacco offerings last <laughs> last year. I participated in five sweats, and just start going down the list. I'm like, oh yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> I smudged 365 times last year. <laughs> Submit a video to the law society, like going on and on and on, start throwing out some random Anishinaabe words that don't even mean anything. Like, they don't know otherwise. (laughs) And I think that is the reason why it's still very important to have um, Indigenous people occupying this space because, again, how else are these institutions going to know? if people from like with uh, our experiences, our collective experiences aren't there to point it out. Mm-hmm. Well, and like to, to not only ensure that people are occupying those positions of power, um, but that they're not just there to check off the box of, okay, we have our indigenous representation. That person is there to offer knowledge and wisdom and meaningful suggestions, recommendations on how you can change the system to better reflect the needs of Indigenous lawyers, for example, and pay them for Christ's sake. My God. (laughs) (laughs) Right? So much work. Your brains for a little bit. Can you send me a reading list? Oh my goodness. The amount of times I have been approached. Hey, I just, I just want to pick your brain for a minute here. (laughs) (laughs) And then, then build a whole policy based on like your two minute interaction. It's like, girl, you didn't even offer me tobacco. That's your starting point. You know about indigenous law. Yes, and this brings me to another point so I have been in situations where I've been asked by non-indigenous people to provide essentially indigenous law Anishinaabe law and I've said no good for you because I I'm not comfortable sharing first of all I don't believe I'm in a position to share (coughs) sorry excuse me I don't believe I'm in a position to share but also if I don't think the person's coming in a good way in a good, wholesome way that is meant, this knowledge is going to better others, not just themselves. I don't think I should be sharing the little information that I do know. And I do, in that situation, I remember it was such a negative reaction that I had the audacity not to share information with them that I ended up not being involved in the project any further. And that part hurt my feelings because I was passionate about the project. But I just remember thinking like, if this is how they're going to react when I say no to sharing something so intimate and personal, why should I be involved in the first place? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah, it really is important to set those boundaries, I think, as a as a self-care mechanism, but also as a way to protect that knowledge because we're not the experts. I think we made that very clear throughout throughout this episode. <laughs> <laughs> I may be an expert on fashion, but I'm not an expert on on Indigenous legal traditions, and I don't claim to be either. Um, I feel like we've, we've all been in those situations where we're backed into a corner and, and we're, we're pride because for, for answers, because we're the, we're the only Indigenous person in the room. And it's not only that we're the only Indigenous people in the room, but it's that these people asking us often have years and years of legal experience. So they automatically, law is such a hierarchy that they have this perceived uh, position of power over us and that I'm asking you for this so you better do it because mm-hmm. that's how it, the reality is of how it is in practice you know you very seldom hear a junior lawyer say no to a senior lawyer and based on how this individual reacted I could tell that a student I was an articling student at the time I could tell that a student had never said no to them before mm-hmm. and it was very jarring to me that indigenous law which is done in a good way um could be attempted to be taken by someone non-Indigenous in such a negative light. Like it was just such a foreign thing to me that I was like, I need to remove myself from this situation. Mm-hmm. And it was just like, I know Danielle that you do a lot more in Indigenous um, legal research than I do. And I just remember like texting you going like, this just happened and it was so weird. Mm-hmm. And, and it's yeah, because there's a spirit in those in our teachings there's a spirit in the knowledge that we have and because of the history of what had happened previously um, through residential school and the the criminalization of our ceremonies we hold that spirit so preciously and it's important that we keep um mindful of that that it's it's not something that um the little knowledge that we do have it's not something that is that we can commercialize or try and build a whole career exploiting out of it's it's that's just not the way that's just not the way how uh, things are done or at least that's not the way that I was taught and there's a reason why um we're 100% valid to be um, protective of that knowledge I think there's a lot of beauty in that and I think our our teachers would be would be proud of us following protocol because we're not we're not the ones to be to be giving those teachings, even though we understand them and we've lived them. It's to me so important to provide that learning opportunity for that person who's coming to you with knowledge to go out and and do the work that do that relationship building with community, with elders, with knowledge keepers. There's no shortcuts to this. Mm-hmm. You can't just ask an articling student, hey, let me pick your brain for a little while. <laughs> 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 and then, you know, be, be done with it. Uh, how would you even cite that, honestly? <laughs> <laughs> and that, and that doesn't I mean, be- I would be very honored, but... <laughs> That would even extend to articling students or people in the legal field. That's for Indigenous people who are in a space that is predominantly occupied by um, settlers. By, by settlers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. 
and I, yeah, it's a difficult position to be in because we, you know, you want to help, you want to help people, you want to uh, do the work, uh, but as as Indigenous lawyers, I think we really have to strike a balance between sticking to our, our own values and our own understanding of what our, our protocols are, while also ensuring that we're doing our job and, and fulfilling those expectations, those very high expectations that, um, that the field has of articling students, people entering in their, into their first year practice. Um, so I think, it, I think it's very brave of, you know, Raven, um, Alyssa, for, for us to lay those boundaries down and really stick to what we know and what we understand of how that knowledge is transmitted. I think our aunties and our cookums would be really proud. <laughs> <laughs> we might get in trouble for it sometimes, but <laughs> we're just we're doing making, our best, man. <laughs> we're making the right people proud. I feel good about that. I don't regret my decision to say no, if anyone's wondering. <laughs> Good. I like it. Good. You tell him. Well, I think that's, uh, that's enough uh, of us ranting for today. <laughs> we have, uh, I'm not too sure people uh, realize this. I remember we had this uh, question posed to us a few weekends ago of like, well, what's your agenda? Kind of what's your plan for the rest of Gizuikweg? I'm like, yo, we have at least 12 episodes kind of like just in the back pocket ready to uh, talk about whenever. But um, yeah, we're ready to kind of, this is only just like, again, tip of the iceberg of our normal kind of rants that we go into on a regular basis, either in our own heads or in our group chats or when we're hanging out. So thanks for being a part of our discussion today. Thanks for hanging out. Oh, dang it. I didn't make tea this time. Oh, <laughs> Alyssa, we missed an ASMR moment. We missed out on that. <laughs> I know we have all decked out in new mics and everything, too. We could just like. <laughs> you hear the kettle going off in the background. We can still oh my do gosh. That. This is the funniest outro ever. We have a lot in store. This is just basically our rants throughout law school and into practice <laughs> jammed into how many episodes are we doing 12 so far we have 12 planned 13 it'll never end this will be like simpsons it'll just go on to like season 30 or whatever oh, God. so for the record i'll be yeah i'll be about uh, 58 at that time <laughs> <laughs> So right. If you enjoyed the episode, we encourage you to follow our social media handles, Gajiwekweg on Facebook and Instagram, and follow our Spotify and all of our podcast accounts, get all the latest updates, and we'd love to hear your feedback. We want to know, do you like this? Is this entertaining? All right. Thanks, everyone, for listening. <laughs> uh, so we have uh, a Miss Danielle Morrison. Oh, um, what's that? How do you say, uh, oh, where's Wob? Can you meet him? Someone get Wob on the phone. <laughs> Wob! How do you say see you later? He sends me voice notes all the time. It's hilarious. Gigawabaman? Uh, Gigawabaman. Bama P. Gigawabaman. Aho. Aho. Signing off. Love you all. Mwah. Goodbye. <laughs>